Hello, and welcome to From Russia with News, a weekly news podcast brought to you by the Moscow Times. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Millions of citizens of Russia are united by the Olympic dream. I view the Russians as a far greater challenge that we have. President Putin, uh, he just said it's not Russia. A unique country, not bad, not bad at all. My name is Jonathan Brown, and I'm an editor in our newsroom here in Moscow. This week on the program, Russia is embroiled in yet another press freedom scandal, with top journalists from a leading business paper being axed for their political reporting. What we're seeing here is that the border, the imaginary border between state-owned and private media in Russia is getting more and murkier and murkier. We'll speak with one of the Kommersant journalists who was fired and to Russian journalist Alexei Kovalyov about how this latest incident fits into the worsening media landscape here in Russia. And later, a small village on the Volga River is at the heart of an international scandal plaguing Russia's economic lifeblood. Contaminated oil flowing from Russia to Europe has put pressure on Russia to prove it can deliver pure black gold. This has never happened before in the history of Transneft, you know, 25 years or something. Um, and the Druze by this pipeline has existed since, since the 60s. So, I mean, it's 50 years going and nothing like this has ever happened before. We'll speak to Bloomberg's Jake Rudnitsky, who recently visited the scene of the crime. First up, the entire politics desk of the Kommersant business paper, 11 people in total, handed in their resignations this week. The mass departure was a protest against a decision by the editor-in-chief and the oligarch owner to fire two journalists for a scoop back in April. The journalists reported that a member of Russia's upper house of parliament, Valentina Madinienko, might be replaced by an intelligence chief by the name of Sergei Narishkin, a seemingly harmless run-of-the-mill story. But the incident has shocked the media sphere here and points to a further deterioration in the independence of the press in Russia, which has come at a high personal and professional cost to many editors and reporters. Maxim Ivanov, one of the journalists who was let go for the scoop, is joining us on the line. Maxim, thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. You're welcome. Can you tell us, first of all, uh, did you see this coming? No, of course I um, didn't expect that they um, will be fired uh, because of this article or any other article. It was uh, very unexpected for me and uh, my colleagues. I don't know, it was a big surprise for for us. And uh, do you think your colleagues made the right decision to leave or do you think it would have been better if they stayed to, to, to continue to try to produce critical journalism? Uh, I think that um, it's a right question, uh, but uh, you should ask it to my colleagues. Maybe in this moment it was the right decision, but I will never say something bad about my colleagues who decided to continue to do their job, to do it well, to do it right, and uh, continue to publish uh, their articles and so on. Of course. So what do you think the, f- the future of Kommersant is now? Are you hopeful for the future for the paper? Uh, I think it's... Uh, I will never know. Or I will know it uh, after some years. And, uh, I, I don't think that it's right to comment uh, right now. Future, our paper will be... I, I, I hope uh, that in the future... Commerçant will be okay, and owners of the Commerçant will never do the same mistakes as this time. Okay, thanks very much, Maxim, for speaking to us today. Yeah, thank you. Now, joining us over Skype is former Moscow Times editor and head of investigations at Medusa, Alexei Kovalyov. 
Alexei, first of all, can you explain why this piece of reporting from April might have ruffled feathers? It seems like a pretty innocuous scoop. Yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, you know Russian media standards, it was a pretty run-of-the-mill rumor piece uh, based on uh, anonymous sources, because that's the uh, accepted standards in the Russian media and politics now. Very few people will be willing to go on record to confirm or deny something like this. So you'll see a lot of these uh, political uh, scoops and, uh, you know, in articles about industry and economy based on anonymous sources. Some of them don't even play out, like in this case, uh, you know, Valentina Matvienko, the Speaker of the Upper Chamber of the Russian Parliament, the Council of the Federation, she did not resign. And there is no way of knowing if she didn't because of the article or it was just the uh, tainted source uh, telling Kamersan that, but we'll never know. So given that the story wasn't anything out of the ordinary, why do you think the reporters were ultimately fired for it? Um, this could be because, well, maybe she was actually thinking about resigning and going to uh, uh, take another position. And when the article came out, her plans, I'm just theorizing here, because there is no, as, as I said, there is no way of knowing for sure. And uh, maybe her plans were thwarted and she complained to uh, the owner of the newspaper, Alisha Rosmanov, not necessarily demanding to some retribution, but just complained to him uh, casually. And uh, he dealt with, uh, with, with the issue the only way he knows how, by demanding to uh, fire the offending reporters. So it seems likely that the order came down from Usmanov, not necessarily from the Kremlin. Do we have a sense of how high up the order might have come from? Um, no, I don't think so. I think it was just uh, Usmanov or some of his people overreacting because, uh, you know, the Kremlin doesn't really involve themselves with such trivial matters. They can order to uh, kill a whole publication. <laughs> they don't really deal with individual offending reporters. So I think it was just the private initiative, like many of the things uh, that we see happening uh, in Russia, in both domestic and foreign policies, something that people normally attribute to the Kremlin in most cases, in I say in many, not maybe most, but it could be like freelancing by individual actors trying to cover their tracks or conversely to carry favors with uh, people in the Kremlin. So I'd say is it's a private initiative by Usmanov for some of his people. And uh, it's just that he doesn't really, uh, you know, for unlike uh, Rupert Murdoch, for whom his newspapers are a tool of influence, uh, like a means to an end. Uh, for Osman of Kamersant is a burden. I mean, he doesn't need it. It just bleeds money and causes him problems. So <laughs> there, he, he's constantly annoyed. And, and uh, well, of course, his press officer said that, uh, you know, they, they denied involving themselves in uh, editorial matters, something that is actually illegal under Russian law. And, uh, well, let's just say that they're not being entirely transparent because it's, uh, you, know, you know, everyone who's worked in the Russian media industry long enough, they heard rumors. And uh, I interviewed people who told me on record that it's far from an isolated incident. And, uh, you know, people calling from Smanov's office uh, demanding to take an article down because it uh, interferes with uh, Osmanov's business interests. That's far from an isolated incident and it's happened before. So it's not surprising. It's a, what's surprising is actually the scale of the protest. So is there any precedent for a walkout like this? I mean, how can Kamrasen recover from the mass exodus of an entire desk, you know, the heart of the paper? No, it's not the first incident on such scale where journalists have walked out in, in protest against the uh, censorship. In 2014, the entire team of Lenta.ru, the most popular news website in Russia at the moment, walked out, uh, like 60-plus uh, people resigned in protest against the uh, their editor-in-chief, Galina Timchenko, who is <laughs> actually my boss now. 
they resigned and uh you know the the website was left with no one to run it but it's 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 back, it's back up running again with their kremlin loyal team and uh, uh it didn't actually cripple uh the website that much the out the the other outcome of that incident is that everyone who resigned just moved to riga and set up the website i'm working for now medusa okay so can you Place this incident at Kamrasan in the the broader context of the Russian media landscape. In recent years, we've seen criticism that leading outlets like Vietnamisti or Erbaka have fallen into Kremlin-friendly hands. Is this just the latest chapter in the sort of the wider breakdown of the Russian media? What we're seeing here is the that uh, uh, the border, the imaginary border between state-owned and private uh, media in Russia, is getting more and murkier and murkier. Uh, because uh, like you have this distinction between the Kremlin-controlled media and the the few remaining private media that, uh, that are still, to a certain extent, independent. But the websites, the publications that we consider independent, like RBK or Vietnamese, one by one, they are put in control again as something more of a uh, more of a social burden. They don't need these, uh, you know, these rich people like Alexander Mamut or Alisher Usmanov, uh, Mamut who owns Lenta.ru and Gazeta.ru and Afisha and a bunch of other publications. They don't really need these uh, websites. They just keep draining money and, uh, you know, keep causing them problems and complain about censorship. So it's more of a more of a way for, you know, their Kremlin minders, because these uh, rich guys are kept on a short leash. It's kind of a, a way for the Kremlin to unload these uh, publications, which are kept nominally private and independent, but under the control of people who are loyal to the Kremlin. And uh, while people from the Kremlin don't call these uh, uh, their offices, compl- uh, uh, demanding to take an article down, or conversely, demanding that an re- article be written about something uh, that is uh, you know, beneficial to the Kremlin. But instead, what I'm seeing uh, in my colleagues working there and uh, I myself noticed while working at uh, some of these major publications is that there develops a culture of self-censorship, but yet the journalists uh, kind of learn either the hard way or the, uh, the, uh, the easy way, what subjects to avoid, what angles to keep away from, that kind of thing. So I want to see if we can wrangle in an optimistic note here. I mean, yes, press freedom in Russia is clearly becoming more and more constricted, but we've also seen new outlets uh, cropping up like your employer Medusa or The Bell, which is you know a business outlet that has broken some pretty big hitters recently. Is there light at the end of this tunnel? Um, yes, of course. I mean, it's, it looks grim from the outside, but I, you know, I'm, I'm a media manager myself and... Uh, it's incredibly hard to uh, hire a good reporter uh, these days because you know they get the, you know the, the second one appears on the market they get snatched by one of the big guys like BBC Russian or someone else but there's certainly no no shortage of jobs for great reporters and editors in Russia I'd say but of course it, it differs whether it's Moscow or one uh, or one of the uh, big regional places or small regional newspapers no the situation there is very grim indeed but it's not that different from uh, you know from the US media market where local newspapers are closing uh, one by one while you know the big the big guys like CNN are flourishing uh, so yeah, there's a lot of great websites uh, popping up here and there, and uh, I'm working for one that is I'm really proud of. I mean, it's a really a truly independent uh, news outlet. It hires some of the best minds in the industry, and uh, there's actually fierce competition between these uh, independent websites everywhere. We keep getting outscooped by other websites and, and, and newspapers. So it's uh, it's, a, it's still a thriving industry. So I, I wouldn't call it uh, like um, you know all doom and gloom. All right. Thanks, Alexei, for chatting with us today. Okay, cool. 
On the 25th of April, Russia halted oil flows through the Druzhba pipeline to Eastern Europe and Germany because the deliveries had been contaminated with organic chloride. While industry officials work to clean the oil and resolve the problem, the stoppage is costing Russia around $80 million in lost revenues every day. President Putin has lashed out at Transneft, the pipeline operator. Belarus says it may take two more months before clean oil is flowing through its section of the pipeline. And meanwhile, foreign buyers are refusing to pay for the spoiled oil. Joining us in the studio is Bloomberg reporter Jake Rudnitsky to discuss the fallout. Jake, thanks very much for joining us in the studio. Happy to be here. Uh, for most Russia watchers, uh, this is probably a sort of a dry business story, um, but you've injected some intrigue by going to the village where the contamination actually happened. Can you tell us about some of the you know, some of the gossip that, that you heard while you were there? Well, th- this village of Nikolaevka is just, you know, a teeny spot on the map. I think it's got a population of about 500 people. And oddly, the people there are much more interested in store, uh, the plant across the street, which recycles batteries and I guess spews a lot of pollution you know whenever whenever they get a new ba- a new load of batteries you know it just coughs up a lot of pollution and everyone's really concerned about that the uh, their oil terminal not so much so they noticed when it stopped working about a month ago um, but they because there used to be oil uh, trucks just driving through day and night you know tankers with a ton of oil each or a couple tons of oil each. Uh, coming from these small fields and dumping it in there, which would then go into the Transneft system. But uh, they didn't really care. Nobody really in the village worked at this terminal. Um, that was another complaint they had. They said, you know, we're not getting any, we're not getting anything out of this. These guys, so right. hell with them. Russia's investigative committee has blamed a criminal group working uh, alongside or in concert with the, the the local pipeline operators. Is this a common occurrence in in Russia and? What steps are the, are the authorities taking to sort of secure the oil infrastructure? Well, I don't know how common it is. I mean, the criminality obviously is uncommon. This has never happened before in the history of Transneft, you know, 25 years or something. Um, and the Druzhba, this pipeline, has existed since since the 60s. So, I mean, it's 50 years going and nothing like this has ever happened before. So it's not super common. That said, there are, the, Transneft does let a lot of uh, independent or smaller operators access uh, smaller oil producers access their pipeline, and I think really what you have it's it's a kind of a parable for Russia here. You know, you have it, from the outside you look at Transneft; it's a state-owned monopoly. It's uh, it you know controls the pipelines of you know Russia's most valuable export, and you think, oh my God, this is the key to Putin's power. But really, when you look at it under a microscope, this is something that's you know they're kind of holding together with duct tape and. And there's there's uh, you know a lot of just thinking by the flying by the seat of your pants, and it doesn't really function quite as well as you like to think it does. And then every once in a while, you just have a spectacular failure like this, which has you know caused repercussions from Russia all the way to Germany and everywhere in between. Um, and really, you know, there haven't been um, luckily to you know European consumers haven't really felt the pinch yet. You know, it's not like there have been fuel shortages anywhere. Right. But uh, on the other hand, I don't know how far off we are from that potentiality. Right. I've heard from from some of the conversations I've had with with Russian journalists who are reporting on foreign policy that the the, the energy industry and cooperation is is one area in which they actually see uh, Russia having sort of a mutually beneficial relationship with uh, the European Union. Do you think this contamination could potentially jeopardize that? First, I would say there's there's a difference between 
oil cooperation or, uh, you know, buying oil supplies from from Russia and gas because gas is a lot more heavily politicized. And I think there's a direct correlation between, you know, uh, if a country has alternative gas supplies and how much they pay for Russian gas. And uh, and so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of efforts trying to get under the Russian heel uh, with gas supplies. With oil, though, I mean, Russia has always been it's been pretty much completely commercial. So, I mean, the deals that they have are straightforward deals and there's no hanky-panky. And there's not a lot of using oil as a a to flex their geopolitical muscle. Um, This, what are the repercussions of this? I mean, you know, to build new alternative supply infrastructure is hugely expensive. So there is a chance that, you know, once this problem gets resolved, which will happen eventually, I assume, uh, they'll just kind of sweep it under the the carpet and, or, you know, maybe, maybe refineries will build a little bit more reserve capacity so that they can store oil for a rainy day in case right. something like this happens again. But I think this is going to be one of these things that's, you know, it's just a blip. Hopefully that's just a blip on the, on the, uh, what, what is usually pretty stable Russian oil supplies. Uh, Belarus's state oil company said this week that it was going to take another two months, uh, for, for, for this problem to be, to be fully resolved. Um, can you tell us what needs to happen for the problem to be solved? Well, uh, there are definitely stages of solving this problem. So the first thing that they need to do is, you know, at least you know, there, there are parallel lines going to Europe. And so if they can at least, you know, put all the dirty oil into half of the pipeline and clean out the other half, then you're you're at least part of the way to you're, you're easing the you're easing the bottleneck. And so. What what needs to happen first is to at least get half of the pipeline working and clean, and then the other half of it can be storage. Uh, they've already st- started, as of today, I think Slovakia got its first clean oil. Mm. So the stuff that goes kind of south through Belarus, south to Ukraine and onwards, like that stuff looks like they've more or less resolved that problem and have some supply resuming. Uh, the bigger problem is Poland. There's a meeting today in Warsaw between Transneft and Rosneft and the Polish refiners and the Polish um, uh, pipeline operator. And they're trying to hash out that. I mean, I've heard estimates of anywhere up to a million bar- a million tons of oil is stuck in Poland dirty. Wow. And that's, you know, it's going to be a real production. And nobody, uh, you know, none of the refiners want to take it. No, every, everybody's afraid to touch the stuff. Uh, nobody knows who's supposed to pay for it. It's complete chaos. The, but the Russian companies have already paid export duties on it. So, I mean, it's it's the logistical nightmare. I mean, they'll, I'm sure they'll sort it out eventually, but uh, there's going to be a lot of acrimony uh, between here now and then. Um, lastly, I want to ask you about the U.S. announcement this week that it was planning on um, imposing sanctions on, uh, well, related to the, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. Uh, the Kremlin cr- cried foul and basically said that the, the U.S. just wants to uh, be able to, to, to sell uh, gas to to um to europe does it have a point here look i mean i think on the one hand sure the kremlin definitely has a point you know it seems like the the current american administration has been fairly hesitant to put new sanctions on russia except where it com- when it comes to this uh you know clear in uh, business that the americans are interested in we want to export the americans want to export gas just as much as the russians do uh but it's further away and more expensive right uh on the other hand the idea that you know the russians are is a cu- purely commercial deal for the Russians and, you know, it has nothing to do with depriving Ukraine of their of revenue that they make through uh, through gas transit is also ridiculous. Like I said earlier, gas is geopolitical, oil not so much. And so I think I think it goes both ways. Yes, the, the Americans are trying to, you know, 
put you know pinch of pinch of business where they see a possible lucrative uh, lucrative out for their for their uh, LNG supplies, but. The Russians are also obviously playing the political games here. Jake, thanks very much for, for joining us today. Happy to join you. Cheers. And to finish off, perhaps Russia's most brazen escapade abroad occurred this week in Paris. La scène se joue à près de 300 mètres de haut, juste en dessous du troisième étage de la Tour Eiffel. A rogue man who scaled the Eiffel Tower on Monday, forcing its closure, was in fact a Russian citizen. Local media reported that he was an amateur climber with suicidal tendencies who is seeking asylum in France. That's it for this week. Thanks for tuning in and don't forget to rate the podcast on iTunes. It'll help other Russophiles find us. Head over to the Moscow Times website for more on the Commerçant scandal, oil contamination, and other oddities from across Russia. I'm Jonathan Brown. Our producer today was Piotr Sauer, and thank you to CM Records Studios in Moscow for hosting the show. Join us next week on From Russia with News. <laughs> <laughs>